I think, you know, we have to be mindful when we say everyone should come the legal way to acknowledge that legal avenues through which those through which migrants can come is oftentimes very restricted. And so if we're going to say close the back door, we have to then say, well, what are the ways we can open the front door? Hey, All Things listeners, whether you're listening on your favorite podcast app or on YouTube, please be sure to like and subscribe and maybe even leave a comment or review. Thanks so much. Welcome to today's episode of All Things. I am Jen Oshman, and I am joined today by my friend and immigration advocate, Jenny Yang. Welcome to All Things, Jenny. I became familiar with Jenny's work several years ago. Um, first, when I read Welcoming the Stranger, that is a book that Jenny wrote along with her colleague, Matthew Sorens, all about immigration and who are migrants, who are refugees, who are asylum seekers. It was a really eye-opening book, one that was incredibly helpful. Actually, I read it twice, um, and it's one I recommend regularly. Um, but Jenny has been busy about the work of immigration and advocacy and policy for many years now. And so like you, I have been noticing headlines, watching videos and images coming from our southern border. Um, It feels like here in early 2023 that the immigration crisis at the southern border of the United States um, has changed a bit or amped up a bit, or I, I don't know if it's the news, I don't know if it's reality, but it feels tense. And then, of course, President Biden recently visited the southern border and has proposed new legislation. So I wanted to have Jenny on because, one, I am pretty bewildered and I want to know what's really happening and I want to think rightly about immigration um, here in the United States. So, Jenny, thank you so much for taking your time and coming on to All Things. No, it's such a pleasure for me to be here. And I know there's there's always a lot uh, to talk about regarding immigration. And I know sometimes it's kind of the top headline oftentimes. So I look forward to, to speaking about what's going on and, and just our perspective, especially as, as followers of Jesus. So thanks for having me on, Jen. Yeah, absolutely. Jenny, can you start by telling us you know, where you work, what you do, what that role looks like, and how you got involved in immigration work? Sure. So I have been working at World Relief, which is a global humanitarian Christian organization for almost 20 years now. And I started off working in the refugee program uh, where World Relief actually resettles refugees from all around the world to the United States. So we work in partnership with local churches and communities to do this work. And over the past uh, 40 years, we've resettled at World Relief over 300,000 refugees to the United States. And so uh, that's part of the work that we do. And so my job at World Relief is to actually work on public policy. So my my role is to liaise with the U.S. government and figure out what policies they're implementing, uh, what legislation they're considering, and really speak up for positions that we believe would be the most beneficial for the people that we serve. And so whether that's in the United States or overseas, we work mostly in Africa overseas, to alleviate poverty and respond to disasters, that uh, my work and my role really encompasses influencing public policy. So um, it's it's always busy, I would say, and and a lot of my work gets busy based on what uh, the government's doing and and things like that. But in general, it's uh, that's who World Relief is, and it's it's really been a joy to see how much we've been involved in over the past many years. 
Yes, absolutely. I do hear the name World Relief often as it comes up in local churches. So I love that connection, um, being a global organization that plugs into the local church, but is also influencing and advocating within our government. Um, Just a quick sort of tangential question, Jenny. What does it mean to advocate in the government? I mean, are you like knocking on the doors of congressmen and women? Are you, you know, calling up President Biden? I mean, I'm so outside that world. What does that mean that you try to influence legislation? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that question because I think advocacy can be very abstract and it seems very lofty and like something that only certain people can or should do. And and so actually it was when I first talked to my parents and I told them, oh, I do advocacy, they're like, oh, they were reminded of this Korean drama series where there's a woman who wears all black and like jumps out of limos and chases like politicians and like jumps into so limos do, right? and, like, and like wears fancy clothes and goes to fancy dinners. And I'm like, that is not what I do. But sometimes it does in, in, include knocking on the door of, of our legislators. And so, so uh, advocacy basically means speaking up for the welfare of others. And Proverbs 31.8 says to speak up for for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. And I think for the people that we serve, that they have a voice and oftentimes it's just not listened to. But for many of us who live in the United States of America in a democracy where our elected officials are creating policies based on our opinions, we have a responsibility, I think, to have our values inform legislation and public Mm -hmm. policy. And Mm -hmm. so my job at World Belief and the advocacy that I do is to really influence what members of Congress and the president and the White House, what they uh, do that impact the people that we serve. And so it's not just a job that I have, but I really feel like my responsibility is to help other Christians in particular pursue their influence and their, their role in shaping the public square. And so a lot of what I do as well is to inform the broader public about what's going on and have easy tools for people to use to be able to call their members of Congress whenever there's an issue that's important to them. So it's it's a responsibility that I think all of us have. Um, but I, I do know that the term can be a little bit abstract. Um, but I think we can all be advocates and, and pursue better policies for the things that we care about. Yeah, that's great. And it's so helpful. I mean, that's why I wanted you to come on is bring clarity, help us know what's actually happening and how to think about it and what we can do. So let's start there. Cause I feel like, you know, probably for the typical listener to all things, what they're seeing in their social media feed and in their news feed are these images coming, especially from El Paso recently from mm-hmm. the Southern border, where at least it feels like, I don't know if this is true, if this is clickbait, it feels like the crisis at the Southern border is worse than it's ever been. And I, I don't know if that's true. I would love to hear from you you know, can you tell us what's going on at the border and has it changed? Is this markedly different right now? Or is this sort of more of the same um, that we've had over the last several years? What's going on? Yeah. So I do think there has been a significant increase in the number of people who are um, attempting to uh, cross the U.S.-Mexico border. And so, and the reason for that is varied. Um, There's a lot of violence obviously happening in Central America, um, but what's interesting, I think, in particular about this, the past several years, is that a lot of the migrants are actually coming not just from Central America, but also from Haiti and South America as well. And so you see a lot of individuals that, um, because of the violence in Venezuela, which is now considered the largest conflict producing um refugees and migrants in our hemisphere. Um, They're not just staying in South America, they're going through Central America and arriving to our border. 
Uh, and so I know colleagues at World Belief, uh, when we've worked with church, churches at the border, many of the people that we're speaking with are Venezuelans. And so, uh, so yes, there is a large number of people that are attempting to cross the border. Um, but like I mentioned, the nationalities of those people are, are very are di different than um, the numbers that came in in the 1990s. And so um, we are seeing um, a record number. I would say probably the highest numbers of those trying to cross the U.S. border I would say over the past um, 30 years or so, but there were increases in migration and the number of people who are trying to cross um, uh, in the 1990s as well. And so according to the CBP just last year, they apprehended about 2.2 million people that were trying to cross the border. And so it seems like a high number, but at the same time, these were people who probably tried to cross the border two, three, four times and then were pushed back. And so um, it does include, you know, repeat offenders, I would say. And so the number is seemingly, you know, very, very high. Uh, and so, uh, as you know, the president actually recently visited El Paso because he wanted to see firsthand what was actually happening on the ground. And during his visit, he made some policy announcements that he felt like could alleviate some of the pressures on the border and provide some temporary uh, protection for and relief for in individuals who are actually trying to cross the United States of America. And so I think it's a tough position to be in because I think generally as a country, we have to, we should have strong border security. And so uh, we should support our um, CBP and others along the border who are actually trying to keep bad actors out and trying to regulate criminal activity and ensure that there's no smuggling and, you know, drugs and other goods that, um, bad goods that can cross the U.S. border. But at the same time, I would say a large number of people that are trying to cross are people who are trying to seek protection and asylum in the United States of America. And that value of having the United States of America be a place where those who are vulnerable can find protection is, is such an important value that we need to continue to enshrine. And so I think right now the question is, well, what do you, how do you move forward? How do you create avenues for people who really have a claim where if they were returned, they would face danger or death, can find protection in the United States of America. And so we at World Relief have been working with other organizations to try to speak into what that could actually look like um, in a way that really recognizes um, the large numbers, but also the need for people who, with valid claims to be able to state those claims. Mm. Man, it does. I mean, you said Biden's in a difficult position, and I cannot ag agree more. It seems like immigration policy is always on the table, um, and yet not something that both parties have really been able to come to agreement over, at least in the last several years. So, you know, hearing you say Biden wants to make it um, easier or more feasible for those who are fleeing violence to legitimately stay in the United States. I can imagine those on the right are thinking this is bad news. Like we shouldn't be making more avenues for um, people to cross the border. But then I can also imagine those on the left saying, you know, we should be opening the borders more for everybody, not just the specific population in the specific moment. Um, you know, and I heard you say it's good to protect our borders, but also mm -hmm. it's really important that we protect our value um, as Americans for being a place of refuge. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I, can you just speak into that a little bit more? Because I know that is a tension that I feel and a tension that I think most Americans feel is, is the idea that we, while we want to protect our borders, we also want to be a place of refuge. Yeah. How do you balance that in your advocacy work? I mean, what do you make of it? Yeah. 
well, I think one of the a, a simple illustration that I use is that we want to close the back door but open the front door. And mm-hmm. I say that because I think for a lot of us, it's easy to say, well, they should have come the legal way or people need to come the right way. But when you actually look at our current immigration system, there's really no line to get into. There's no visas available, barely any for those who are lower skilled. And I use quote or air quotes around when I say low skilled, because I think a lot of the agricultural work or low skilled labor in technical terms that they call is actually high skilled work. That's very physically intensive and uh, is, is difficult work. Um, but when you look at the lines for which immigrants can come in um, for low skilled labor, it is very challenging for anyone who's living in poverty uh, to be able to get those kinds of visas. And so I think that's one thing to recognize. And then the other thing as well is that because of COVID and some various policies that have been in place since March 2020, right now it is extremely difficult for any individual to be able to come into the United States because they are being turned away. So Title 42 is this provision that was instituted by President Trump that basically said we can't have migrants coming in in the middle of the pandemic. And it's a policy that has continued under President Biden. And so because of this, many migrants are being turned away and do not have the ability to state their asylum claim in the United States of America. So there's been a conversation over the past uh, few years and even recently of what the president, President Biden is going to do to overturn Title 42. And right now, the Supreme Court has said that while they rule on the merits of the actual um, policy, that it can actually remain in place. So right now we're operating under that public health rule. And so many migrants are being turned away. And so what the president has been thinking about, which we have been trying to press him to do is, well, okay, you have, you know, these various restrictions on asylum where people are being turned away because of public health reasons. So how do we open the front door? How do we allow people who really have um, vulnerability to be able to come into the United States of America. So we, so I mentioned earlier that back in um, the 80s and 90s, a large majority of individuals that were trying to come into the United States were from Mexico and largely Central America. And now we're seeing a more diverse population of people who are trying to come in from the Caribbean, so Cuba and Haiti, as well as Venezuela. And so he announced this new program, which is a parole program, and that would allow anyone in the United States to sponsor an individual from Cuba, Nicaragua, Haiti, and Venezuela. And so there's an estimation um, that around 30,000 of these individuals will be able to come in through the parole program, which would be opening the front door. And so, mm-hmm. so it's a it's a unique way to um, look at you know who's not allowed to come, but who actually can come now through these new policies. And so it's a creative way to get to. Um, trying to decrease people who are trying to cross the border with the authorization, right? And so uh, we instituted this program before for Venezuelans and then also for Ukrainians and then also for Afghans. And so the administration is now expanding this program, uh, which uh, we found in the past has significantly decreased those who are trying to cross the border without authorization. Now, the program is a little bit unique um, and challenging in that a person who is trying to come in has to have a U.S. sponsor. And so if someone is very vulnerable and they don't know anyone in the United States who can sponsor them, they're basically stuck and will be returned back to Mexico in most cases. Um, and so there is some kind of hiccups with the program. But again, it's an attempt to open the front door. And so I think, you know, we have to be mindful when we say 
everyone should come the legal way to acknowledge that legal avenues through which those through which migrants can come is oftentimes very restricted. And so if we're going to say close the back door, we have to then say, well, what are the ways we can open the front door? And, you know, there, there's various attempts like this new parole program that have been in place that is attempting to do just that. Yeah, that is so helpful because, I mean, people say so easily and so flippantly, they've got to come in the legal way, um, which we no one would disagree with that. But what people don't often share, what doesn't make the headlines, what we're not, you know, sort of spouting off to each other is there just aren't a lot of legal ways. Um, and that, and, and I love that you um, are sharing with us that as we increase the legal way, it's decreasing the attempts at illegal crossings. And so that mm-hmm. that is hopeful, but of course it requires time and nuance to actually describe that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, our family, you know, we adopted a daughter from Thailand several years ago. And even mm-hmm. us, both my husband and I being American citizens, and then her being adopted into our family, mm-hmm. we had to live with her overseas for three years before mm-hmm. we could immigrate her to the United States. So, you know, I think that personal experience showed me that even for us as an American family, we had to go through these specific legal channels that were incredibly clogged. um, And it just took so much time even to bring our own child into our own country. Um, And I think it's just something people don't really know that it's, that it's hard to get here legally. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I think, um, I mean, it's appropriate to um, feel like there's an alarming situation at the border. And it is true that there are, uh, high numbers of people who do want to cross. But I think when you look at the way the policies are working now, it's important to remember that most people are being turned away at the border. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we want to continue to help protect those who are truly vulnerable, coming up with creative solutions like this parole program and other ways is really um, enshrining in our country the value of, of, of providing protection to those who really need it. Yeah, I feel like it's something that all sides can celebrate and get behind mm-hmm. is, is this kind of legislation. Yeah. Um, now, it's not perfect, obviously, but it's something, you know, closing the back door and opening the front door. I love that. Um, Jenny, why are people now I know I know that migrants are not a monolith, but help us understand why people flee to the southern border of the United States. What are some of the reasons people flee Venezuela, Central America, Mexico? What are they coming here for? Yeah, so. Um, I mentioned a little bit before what's happening in Venezuela. There's a severe economic crisis. There's political dissension. And so a lot of people are not able to live there and fleeing uh, for various reasons. And in Haiti, I think a lot of people are fleeing extreme poverty. They've fled uh, natural disasters there. Um, there's also political turmoil. I know at World Belief, we work in Haiti and we're continuing to work through church communities there to do ag development and um, other uh, disaster response related projects as well. And so uh, we know the conditions that people are fleeing from and and trying to enter the United States. And even in Cuba, we've had this historic relationship with Cuba where we've actually allowed um, over decades the arrival of Cuban migrants to come into the United States um, because we know that there um, continues to be political repression in Cuba as well. And so those are, are things that we're, we're mindful of. And um, and in Central America, we know that in Nicaragua and in, and, um, and El Salvador, that there continues to be high rates of homicide. Mm-hmm. And so many people are fleeing gender-based violence and other just um, criminal activity as well. And so I actually went to El Paso uh, last year where 
I actually, or two years ago where I got to meet some of these migrants. And Mm -hmm. one of the women I met with um, was actually pregnant and she was trying to cross the border because she, her brother was killed in gang violence. Mm -hmm. She actually was getting threats um, for, um, to actually kill her child and her. And so because her brother was killed, she decided to make the trek up North and tried to seek asylum in the United States. And so she actually was someone who um, was able to go and get a court date. And so she was actually Mm -hmm. waiting in Mexico to be able to cross back into the United States to state her claim for asylum. And so she actually had a lot of the documentation with her and was, uh, when I met her, um, um, she was basically being um, housed at um, a, um, at a local church, actually. And so in El Paso, there's a lot of uh, faith communities that are actually doing a lot to help migrants when they arrive there with some basic necessities and even shelter to, mm-hmm. um, depending on how long they're going to stay there to and to help with their immigration case. And so you see a lot of people like that who um, have directly experienced violence, have the threat of violence against their lives. And if, literally, if they did not leave, maybe would have been killed or severely um, hurt. And so you, you just hear a lot of these cases of individuals where, you know, within one family, you have your brother, your sister, your mother killed, and they're coming after you. And, you know, the threat of gender-based violence, the threat of homicide uh, forces you to flee that situation. And really, there's nowhere else around it. And so um, I just want to highlight as well that, you know, you have these stories of people that are fleeing extreme violence. But when they get to Mexico and or even are able to cross and end up in El Paso and wait their case in the United States, you really see a lot of faith-based communities and churches stepping up to the plate and really doing amazing work uh, to meet the needs of, of people right where they are. And so when I actually went, um, I was in El Paso, but then there are other times I, I went to Juarez and Mexico and other places where the Mexican pastors have told me, you know, if there's anything that the American church can do, I mean, obviously pray for what's happening, but we need more resources and legal resources to help these people with their cases because many of them are going to show up in court in the U.S. They don't have attorneys. They don't have, um, you know, they don't speak English and they just have to navigate a lot to be able to um, state their claim and actually get asylum in the United States. And so they're like, send attorneys to here because we need them to um we need their help. And so, you know, as much as they're doing, I, the pastor that I met in Juarez, I remember he he actually moved out of his office in his church because it could hold more cots for migrants to be able to live there. And so he said, you know, he has services on Sunday, but the rest of the week, Monday through Saturday, they set up uh, cots for people to live in. So their house, their church has become like a shelter. And so they move the cots around off to the sides and put in pews when it's Sunday, but then when it's the rest of the week, they push the pews to the side and then put in the cot so that migrants can live there. And it really was a testament to them living out their faith. And in fact, he said that a lot of even the Haitian migrants that were at his church um, became, you know, they became believers and they were just professing their faith in Jesus and really clinging to the hope that God was giving them mm-hmm. and declaring to this pastor that they felt the love of Christ because they were so welcomed in this community. And so... Um, it's incredible to just see how many followers of Jesus have been um, really using the crisis as uh, an opportunity to express their faith and to really step into the gap and meet the needs of people who are vulnerable. 
Yeah, that is truly inspiring. I mean, I just think of that pastor. The Lord is so pleased with that. Mm. He's so honored and delighted in those acts of service in that community. Um, But, you know, what you share about migrants coming north and fleeing violence, that is like almost impossible for me to wrap my mind around, you know, just Mm. visualizing myself as a mom or pregnant, losing my brother in a violent way and having to flee my country to save my life and the life of my child. Mm. And so that that fleeing obviously is super difficult and making their way north. um, I can't imagine what especially women endure and suffer Um, as they're trekking north. Mm -hmm. But then to get to a border, you know, I have been an immigrant in multiple other countries and lived elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And it's super intimidating to talk to any officer in any other other country, you know, whenever, Mm -hmm. like, as an American living in Europe and Asia, when we would get official mail, you know, with the seal of the government on it, we would freak out. We're like, what did we do? We broke a law, something's wrong, you know, it's just so intimidating to navigate um, the legal structure of a foreign country. So I can't imagine, you know, enduring that trek and then arriving here, and not knowing how to navigate the system or perhaps read the language or, you know, it just has to be the, the term, what, you know, the, the clips that we see on the news don't do justice to what people are actively enduring. And so thank you for helping us think that through a little bit more. It's really um, significant what they're enduring. Mm, yeah, it is. And I want us to help humanize the narrative that we see in the news mm-hmm. Um, and the narrative, I think, can focus a lot on the negative and the numbers, mm-hmm. but behind every number is an individual story. And I think it's important for us to realize that these are people who are not wanting to break the law or yeah. find ways to break the law. These are individuals who find who are escaping out of sheer desperation. Mm-hmm. And I think if we put ourselves in their shoes, we probably would be doing the same exact thing. And so for there's sure. no higher morality, I think, um, because we're in a situation where we're not forced to make decisions about mm-hmm. life or death. And so I think for us to be mindful of that is is really important. Um, and so, uh, you know, getting to meet people who are impacted and hearing their stories, I think, is, is crucial as we think about policies in general. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Jenny, I want to just ask you two more questions and then we'll wrap it up. But the first one is this one thing in welcoming the stranger, which is your book that I will link in the show notes. It was so helpful. Um, it's one that I read and also listened to. So really I can't commend it to all the listeners. Um, but what was really eye opening to me in the book is what the sort of average migrant is like, you know, what the, that demographic is like when they get here, um, Mm. in terms of, you know, just the amazing law abiding citizen that most migrants are after they cross the border. Can you um, just share a little bit about that with the listeners? Yeah. So I think that's a great question. I mean, there migrants really encompass anyone who lives, leaves their home country and comes to the United States of America. And so you have high skilled, you know, software engineers and you have people like my dad who was a f- sponsored by Ford Motor Company and ended up immigrating here because of a skill he had, which was fixing cars um, and as a mechanic. And then you have, uh, you know, you have people who are what we quote unquote are low skill laborers, but these are individuals who work in the agricultural industry or come here uh, with those skills. And, and so it's, it's really kind of a broad array and a diverse array of individuals. And, but I want to focus really on people who have maybe been in the news in the headlines. So we had over the past year and continues today, Ukrainians who have been coming to the United States in um, good numbers. And many of them were living in Ukraine and were teachers and bakers and engineers and 
um, police officers and because of the conflict there were forced to flee. And so many of them are arriving to the United States and even Afghans whom we evacuated in of several years ago, these are individuals who um, also escaped because of the fear of the Taliban. And so they're coming here and many of them have many skills to offer in this country and, and they uh, were professionals and had certification. But when you come into this country and then have to, um, you know, get recertified and learn a completely new language, there are just barriers, I think, for many individuals to really try to reestablish themselves in this country. And so I, uh, whenever I drive Uber or get a Lyft, a lot of times I'll talk to the drivers and a lot of them are migrants or immigrants who have come here and need some extra money while they're getting their footing down because they're trying to juggle four or five jobs and try to, you know, basically do the thing that they were doing back in their home countries. And so, you know, we'll have a lot of those encounters as well. And so, I, I think it's just important as we think about migrants in general um, to know the value and the skills that they bring to this country already and and the fact that they're trying to learn a new language and English is probably their second, third or fourth language that they know and then really trying to adapt here um, are, are things that we should be you know mindful of. And so, you know, I think all of us, unless we're Native American, have some kind of migration story, whether that was you yourself or whether that was your parents or your, you know, multi-generations removed. But I think always being reminded of, of where our family came from is important because many of the migrants today are facing the challenges that perhaps our own families faced when they first got here. Um, it's not very different from what our own families experienced. And so being mindful of that and, and just, I think that should shape how we treat them um, and also how we talk about them. Um, in a way that's affirming, in a way that's dignifying, in a way that's respectful. Uh, and so I feel like just being um, able to to keep that in mind is, is really important. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, last question. Where can people keep up with you and sort of where can people get involved in this work? Where can the average listener sort of dip her toes in the water of immigration work? Yeah, so I would encourage you, especially if... Um, you're online a lot um, and use social media to for news is to follow Woman of Welcome. So mm-hmm. Woman of Welcome is a group that of women primarily that have really daily conversations around what's happening in the news and how as followers of Jesus we can respond. So they have Bible studies, they have videos, they have resources, and it's become this amazing community of women who are asking tough questions and um, trying to create welcoming communities in their own neighborhoods. And all of that is encompassed in um, in this Woman of Welcome. So if you subscribe to them on Facebook or on Instagram, follow them, uh, they have a lot of offerings there. And of course, with World Belief, we have a lot of uh, opportunities for anyone to get plugged in at the local level. So we actually have around 22 offices now in the United States that resettle refugees and serve immigrants. And so we're always looking for volunteers you can join us and create what's called a good neighbor team where you can work with their church to welcome any immigrant or refugee in your local community. And so follow us for news updates, but also to get plugged in locally. And um, yeah, those are actually the, the two places I would encourage people to look at. Yes, I love that. I am familiar with both of those avenues and cannot recommend them enough as well. Um, we have a family in our church that's doing the welcoming um, with an Afghan family, and it's been so rewarding for our church to be a part of that. Um, and also Women of Welcome, such a great resource. So Jenny, thank you for your time and your expertise and just breaking it down for us. This has been really, really helpful. 
Yeah. Thank you so much, Jen. And uh, I appreciate the conversation. Absolutely. Thanks, Jen. Mm-hmm. Thanks so much for taking time to listen to All Things with me, Jen Oshman, where we look at current events and cultural trends through a Christian lens. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, so we're seeking to apply his word to what's happening here and now.